Turn in your Bibles, Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter number 15. And uh, I don't think that's going to help me, do you? Luke chapter number 15. And we'll begin reading verse number 11. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, I think, to many of us that are students of the Word of God. Uh, we've, we've read this, we've preached on it, we've heard preaching on it many times in our life. Uh, and I may not say anything you've not heard before today, but I hope to be a help to you. I believe this is the mind of God for us this morning. Luke chapter 15, we'll begin in verse number 11. Luke chapter 15, verse number 11. The Lord Jesus is uh, speaking here, He's teaching a parable. And He says this, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land. He began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, and had compassion, and ran, and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. and Bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his elder brother was, or elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came, came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, Yet trans, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be here. Thank you for these precious people that have gathered in this place. Lord, they're, they're not here because of me. They're here because of you, Lord. Uh, and though they love me and though they're good to me and my family, Lord, they're not here because they love me, but because they love you and they want to hear from you, Lord. They, they want the Word of God to do a real and living work in their hearts and lives today. And Lord, I know that your Word is up to the task. It's capable of it. So, Father, help us as we have our hearts open to the truth of Thy Word. May our spirits be obedient unto You and our attitudes be submitted unto You. May we allow You to do the work that we need done in our hearts today. Lord, for all of us need work done in our hearts. And, Lord, we know that as You accomplish this, You'll receive glory 
and we'll be helped by it. Father, we love you and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, unless this is the first time you've sat in church, I would probably venture a guess that there, there's uh, unlikely to be anyone in this room that's not heard Luke chapter 15 preached on before. We commonly call this the passage of the prodigal son. And all his story, we know it well, don't we? About this younger brother who makes a foolish decision, though there he lives with position, uh, with provision, uh, with power, with comfort, with peace, with all these things, and he throws it all away so that he can go his own direction and live his own life. This has served uh, ever since the Holy Ghost, put pen to paper in Luke 15 as a cautionary tale uh, for the people of God uh, that we got it a lot better at home than we'll have it in the far country. Now let me just say it to you again this morning. You've got it far better at home with uh, with the Lord than you'll have it in the far country with the devil's crowd. We know his story, man. We know about his waywardness. We know about how somehow these stories about the far country had bled into the father's home. And let me just make a parental statement this morning. You better be vigilant, parents. Uh, you know that this boy, his heart got out of the will of God and out of fellowship with his father uh, before he ever left the house. How did that happen? How did he ever hear about the far country? He didn't see it on Facebook. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't watch a documentary. Amen. Somehow the influence of the far country got in that house. You know why? Because the far country's always knocking on your doors when you got kids. Uh, the far country is always trying to find an entrance, always looking for an unlatched window or an unlocked door in your house to try to come and to woo your kids away. And don't be naive. That's exactly what the world wants. They don't want your children serving God. They want your children down in the hog pen with their life a wreck. And so the far country comes and, and, and gets into that home, the influence of it somehow. And this young man, instead of doing the wise thing and, and staying close to his father, and here's what would have helped him if he had immediately took those things to his father and asked his father about it. His father would have given him some wisdom. But instead, he allows himself to be lured away. He allows his heart to leave before his feet ever took a step. We know about his waywardness. We know about his wandering. Because where the heart goes, the feet will soon follow. His heart went to the far country, so it wasn't long he set his feet in that direction. He goes to his father and he says, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. I'm going to take these things and go and leave. Actually, I don't know that he even said that when he first asked for it. He probably claimed he was going to stay at home. He probably claimed, but now he's got money burning a hole in his pocket. He's got the far country calling his name. And so down the driveway he goes. He leaves the comfort and safety of the Father's house for the peril and pleasure of the far country. We know about his wandering. We know about his wickedness. Uh, the Bible uh, tells us that uh, he went and, and engaged in what the Bible calls riotous living. Can I say this? Riotousness is a sin against God. Riotousness is a sin against God. To be driven by your passions to be unhinged uh, by your desires and to not allow your heart and spirit to be submitted to the Lord, to just be going wild and to be driven in the fervor of uh, your own uh, lust, that is a sin against God. He, he went and engaged in riotous living. Later on, the, the uh, brother would accuse him of devouring the father's living with harlots. We can imagine all the wicked things, and maybe it's better we don't, but we can imagine there were wicked things that he engaged in and involved himself in. Uh, we know about his wickedness. We know about his waking. Uh, we know about that moment in the pig pen whenever he, the Bible says he came to himself. 
uh, he uh, all of a sudden realized he's looking at himself and he's saying, boy, you know, I got it worse than the worst person has it at my daddy's house. Can I tell you, uh, the devil will be a lot harder on you than God will ever be. Sin will be a lot worse to you than the Savior will ever be. Uh, you think you've got it bad. You just give your life to the devil and you'll learn what bad is. And he says, uh, how many of my father's hired servants have uh, enough bread to eat and to spare? And I perish with hungry, says I will arise and I'll go home. And I'll say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and thy sight and no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Isn't that interesting, man? Uh, listen, uh, uh, a little bit of brokenness will change your perspective. When he is sitting at home, he was a son, but he felt like he was treated as a servant. Uh, now he goes to the far country and he ain't just treated as a servant, he's treated as swine. And now he wants to come home and he don't even want to be a son anymore. He just wants to be a servant again. He craved to be back in what he was complaining about a few months earlier. We know about his waking and we know about his welcome. We know that when he gets back, he's not treated as a servant, but he is treated as a son. He comes and, and you can imagine him rehearsing it a thousand times in your mind. You probably had those moments when you was driving home a, a beat up, banged up car and wondering how you was going to explain to your daddy what happened and why you was out when you shouldn't have been and uh, he, he, he's all the way home. He's rehearsing it in his mind. Here's my spiel. Here's my speech. I'm going I'm to spit it all out. And he gets there and he just spits it all out. And then the father says, uh, stop that nonsense. Somebody bring me a robe. This boy looks cold. <laughs> Somebody bring me shoes. He ain't got no shoes fit to wear. Somebody bring that royal ring that shows that he's my son and put it on his finger. What a blessed welcome he received. Can I tell you this? You're scared to come back to God. Uh, there ain't nothing to be scared of. Uh, let me just say it again. There ain't nothing to be scared of. Is all the people traveling, all the people that used to amen me? Hey, listen, you ain't, there ain't nothing to be scared of. You come on back to the Lord. You know what you'll find out? He still loves you. He still loves you. We know well the story of the younger brother. But there is another brother in this story. He is called the elder son or the elder brother, the brother of the one that we all know so much about. And there's less said about him. There's not a long story to be told about him. And the reason is simple. He stayed home. Can I say this? Bless the Lord for short testimonies. I'm not talking about Tuesday night. I'm not talking about pragging on the Lord and praise. I'm talking about praise God for people whose testimony is, I was young, I went to vacation Bible school and got born again. Praise God for people that don't have to whenever they're getting ready to tell. Now listen, praise God that He saves those who have been like that younger son out in the far country. Praise God that He saves the prodigal. Praise God that He saves those that are broken. But let's never make it seem like it's a desirable thing to go down that path because it gives you a more dramatic testimony. Praise God for the testimony of folks that get in when they're young and stay in. That's what we ought to be going for. It's what we ought to be aiming for. And so there's not a whole lot really that's said about him. What do we notice about him? Well, I would say number one, we notice his service. The Bible tells us that he never left the field of his father. Verse 29, he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. So here was a boy that never left. There was never a time when his responsibilities were neglected. He fulfilled his responsibilities. He stayed serving his father. Can I make a statement to you this morning? Some folks never quit going to church. Never quit singing in the choir. Never quit teaching a Sunday school class. Yet they still get out in their hearts. I don't know if you've noticed it, but this uh, older brother, there's some good things going to say about him, but he ain't in such good shape by the end of this. But he never quit serving his father. Can I tell you this? Service is a good thing. We ought to serve God. 
But serving alone is not enough to keep us right with Him. He never left the field. We also notice He never left the Father's house. Verse 29, He says, Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. In other words, He never rebelled and went out and lived in sin like His younger brother did. We notice His obedience. Uh, Not only His service that He fulfilled His responsibilities, but His obedience. He followed the rules. He was not somebody that was engaged in riotous living. He wasn't keeping company with harlots. If you looked at his life, you wouldn't have seen any open uh, and avowed sin taking place. In fact, to look on the outside, he looks like he's doing everything correctly. Can I say this? Some folks never slide into open and defiant sin. Uh, You won't see him down at the bar. Uh, You won't see him drunk in their own house. You won't see him down stepping out. Uh, with uh, somebody other than their spouse. You won't see them down doing drugs. You won't see them uh, down somewhere robbing and looting. And yet still in their hearts, they grow rebellious. I I noticed that he never left the father's house, but then I noticed this. He never left the fellowship that he had with his father, at least not for many long years. We see his presence. He was faithful in his relationship. You remember what his father said? He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. Now that's a statement of the Father. What He's saying is, it's true you did not leave me like your brother. You've been with me the whole time. Can I say this? Some folks never quit praying and never quit reading their Bibles. Yet still they drift from the Lord. I'm going to make a statement and I want you to listen carefully. It's true that the meat of the Christian life is praying and reading your Bible. But you know it's possible to pray and read your Bible and still not have a dynamic relationship with the Lord. It's possible to be disobedient to Him in your heart, to have control over your own life, not let Him have control over it. Just because you're reading through the Bible once a year, just because you're filling those 15 minutes every morning, that don't mean that you're where you need to be with the Lord. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, that's a pretty high standard. That's pretty harsh. What was it that happened? I mean, he's doing everything right, and still he winds up wrong. How does that happen in a person's life. I think in our text today, we find the answer. I want you to notice with me three thoughts about this older brother's decline. How is it possible, and here's the title of my message, this is a boy that was close to home, but he was far at heart. He never got out. He never wandered. From the outside looking in, it looked like everything was right. But boy, something evidently was deeply wrong. Because when we come to the end of this passage, he is angry He is bitter. He is out of fellowship with his father. He's resentful of his younger brother. He's not rejoicing over what's taken place. There could not be a starker difference. There is a bigger difference. Listen carefully. As big a difference as there is between the actions of the younger brother and the actions of the father, there is as big of a difference between the attitude of the of the older brother and the attitude of the father. It wasn't an external thing. It was an internal thing, but it was real nonetheless. How did that happen? I want you to notice these three thoughts. First, I want to talk to you about the symptoms of his heart's rebellion. Then with the Lord's help, I want to talk about the source of his heart's rebellion. Where did it come from? And then with the Lord's help, I want to talk to you about the solution. I'm glad there's a solution. Can I say, if we're not where we need to be this morning, there's a solution. And we find it in the Word of God. First off, how could we tell in reading this text that something was wrong? Before he ever interacts with his father, before he ever has his meltdown, his blow up, whatever you want to call it, there are some things we can see that are symptoms of his heart's rebellion. In other words, when these are present in our life, it's a good indication that we are drifting in our devotion to the Lord. Let me say, number one, we see that he lost his faith. 
Look at verse 25 with me. Now his elder son was in the field. He's where he's supposed to be. He's out, he's serving, he's working. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. I don't know what Baptists want to do with that dancing word there. I guess we're just going to believe it. Amen? And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Now I find that pretty interesting. Compare that to the attitude of the father. You know, the Bible tells us that whenever the prodigal comes home and he's got this whole thing rehearsed in his mind and he's coming up the driveway, the Bible says when his father saw him afar off, he had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. In other words, and, and another little clue we have in it is there's a fatted calf, meaning it had been set aside, had been prepared. The father lived in a constant expectation that his son was going to come home. We don't know how in the imagination of our Lord how many years or months or days or weeks or however long this boy was in the far country. But we do know that it's shown to us in the text that the father never gave up hope, never quit expecting that he was going to come home. He waited every day. He was preparing a calf. He was preparing things for his son to come home because he just believed that God was going to bring his boy back to him. We can imagine that probably for a season the elder brother was right there with him. Undoubtedly the father when he would get out and sit on the porch and and watch and wait when he would go out and prepare the fatted calf. Undoubtedly the elder brother being as much a steward over that household as the father was would go with him, would sit with him. They probably talked and discussed. The elder brother knows about the fatted calf. He knows why it was prepared. They probably had had discussions and they probably would talk. He'd probably look at his daddy and say, you really think brother's going to come home? He'd say, yes son, I believe he is. God's going to make it happen. You can imagine that for a season he held that same hope. He probably sat with his father. He probably watched with his father. He probably prayed with his father, hoping and expecting that the brother would come home. But that's not what we see when we come to our text. We come down to verse number 25 and he hears a party going on in the house. And it is beyond his imagination to think that it could be because his brother came home. You know why? Somewhere in the long scheme of things, he quit expecting God to bring his brother home. Can I tell you what's a good symptom of our heart drifting from the Lord? When we start to come to church and we quit expecting God to do anything. We don't expect Him to speak to our heart. We don't expect Him to save sinners. We don't expect Him to work in other people's lives. In our own life, when we pray, we don't expect Him to answer those prayers. When we read the Bible, it's just formality. It's just dry duty and responsibility. And we don't expect that He's going to speak to our hearts. When we lose our faith, and I don't mean we lose our doctrine. I mean we lose our faith. We quit expecting God to show up and to do something in our lives. It's a good indication there's something going wrong. We might still be reading that Bible, but we just read it because that's what we do. We might still be praying, but we're just doing that because that's what a Christian does. We might still be coming to church. God bless you. You need to come to church. You get help Come to church. But do you expect God to work in your heart when you come to church? A part of the reason that Christianity is, is, is struggling so much today is Christians have quit viewing Christianity through a biblical prism. We have started to view it like the Catholics view their church. <laughs> And so it grows dead and dry to us because we just show up because it's ceremony, it's pageantry, it's duty. It's nothing more than sacrament to us. We don't expect the living God to show up and work in our lives. Well, I'll tell you this, He's here and ready to work, but you have to be willing to let Him work. He had lost His faith. Number two, look what it says in verse 27. And He said unto him, Thy brother is come. So the servant speaks to the older brother, and he says, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. 
Now, I understand some of the things that the uh, older brother is experiencing and feeling. If you grew up in a house like me where you were not the favored child, then you would understand too. But I am struck by verse 28. It says that he was angry. He was angry. And he goes on to explain some reasons why, and we'll explore them here in a moment. But can I just notice something really on the surface? Not only had he lost his faith, he lost his joy. He's a miserable person now. I'm just going to insert this right here. I was going to say something about it here in a moment. But he was more satisfied with the sinful party taking place in the far country than he was the celebratory party taking place in the father's house. He was more happy when his brother was out wrecking his life than he was when his brother was seeing his life redeemed. All of a sudden now he's miserable, he's bitter, and he's angry. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. Christians are allowed to have a bad day. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, Thou shalt not have a bad day. And I'm not suggesting that life is always pleasant. But I am saying that there is a Holy Ghost born, uh, biblically uh, instructed and founded and supported joy that the child of God ought to have. There ought to be nobody in the world happier than God's people. Uh, hey, listen, the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. And I'm just telling you, and I, I let, let me just say it real clear. It's normal for Christians to have joy. It's abnormal for them to be miserable. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not unpleasant things in life, nor am I expecting or, or, or declaring to you that people don't have battles and struggles that they deal with, emotional things and chemical things. I'm not in any way trying to criticize, but I'm saying there ought to be something underneath all of that, a level of joy that we maintain in being the redeemed of the Lord. When we lose our joy, it's good indication that something's wrong deep inside. I'm not saying you're going to enjoy everything, but you can joy in the things you don't enjoy, knowing that they've been dispensed to you by the hand of God and knowing that God is working in your life and knowing that in all things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. Something's wrong when Christians lose their joy. We live in a day today where people struggle to such a degree that preachers are scared to say that. They feel as though they're going to be seen as insensitive to things that people are struggling with. Listen, I'm not insensitive to the things that people struggle with, but I'm not going to lie to you and say that it's normal for us to be miserable. That's not what God called us to. It's not what He saved us to. It's not what He provided for us. I would say this, when your joy is lost, there's something wrong. And then look at verse 28. The Bible says this, He was angry, and then what would happen? He would not go in. That'll fix him. That's always stopped a party, hadn't it? Sit outside and sulk. That usually makes everybody quit. No, it didn't. Therefore, came his father out and entreated him. So he lost his faith. He quit expecting God to do something. He lost his joy. He became a miserable person, a sour person, a bitter person over what happened. And then he lost his fellowship. He refused to go in where the father was. And instead, he said, I'm just going to sit out here. Up till this moment, he had enjoyed fellowship with his father. Now he sulks outside the house, refusing to talk with his father. I, I, I wrote down two things. I want you to think about them with me. One, if he was going to avoid the father, he had to stay out of the house. Now let me say this, uh, and I've seen people go through this in their life. I, like Jonah running from the presence of the Lord, they get out and they stay out. Why? Not, not because of the people sitting in the pews or because the preacher standing in the pulpit, but because the Holy Ghost that stirs hearts. If he was going to avoid the Father, he had to try to stay out of the house to do so. And I found that people oftentimes don't want to come in the house 
whenever they're afraid that God is going to deal with them. Number two, I would say this, when he wouldn't go in, his father came out to him. <laughs> I like that, man. I, I, I know what I would have done as a parent. I would have said, well, I'd go out there and cry about it then. You know, my kids are going to be we're real well adjusted. But man, I'm thankful God's not that way. It's not what the Lord does. The father came out to where he was. He said, son, what's going on? What's happening? What's got you so upset? What's got you so dysfunctional? What's going on in your heart and life? Can I tell you something about the good, gracious God we serve? Even when we're running from Him, He'll chase us. When we don't deserve to be chased down, He'll chase us. He'll send a storm after us. He'll send a whale after us. He'll, he'll, see, he'll send a tempest after us. He'll pursue us because He loves us and cares about us. But when all of a sudden we grow satisfied with not spending time with the Lord, there's a problem in our life. When it becomes mere formality and nothing else. I see the symptoms of his heart's rebellion. Number two, I want you to notice the source of his heart's rebellion. So we know what it looks like, right? He lost his faith. He quits expecting God to work. He lost his joy. He's a miserable person. He's bitter. He's unhappy. He's sour. He lost his fellowship. He don't want to spend time with God anymore. So what is it that caused all this? Well, he sort of gives an answer. Notice with me verse number 29. It says, And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. Son, what's wrong? And he goes down a laundry list. He tells some truths in there and he tells some things that are not true. And I'll show you which ones are not true. But we could summarize his three problems. What his beefs were against God and against the world and against his father and against his brother in three categories. Let me notice number one. He was bitter about what he had done for his father. The first thing he talks about in verse 29, he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. Neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. Boy, he's awful proud of his life, isn't he? He's saying, don't you realize, Daddy, that for all these years I could have done what he did, but instead, being the great guy I am, I stayed here and helped you run this farm. <laughs> could you imagine some of y'all saying that to your daddy? You ought to be thankful that I stay in this house, slide my feet up under this table. What a drab place it would be if I ever extricated my presence from this house. He's awful proud of what he's done. He really thinks a lot of what he's done. Notice first off his focus on his service. These many years do I serve thee. There's a lot of things wrong with that. Uh, one of the things that's wrong with that is he believes somehow his service is better than everybody else's. Do you remember what the younger brother says? How many of my father's hired servants? And that statement was given to emphasize the numerical value. He's saying, think about all those servants my daddy has. And they've got more uh, enough to eat and more to spare. And I perish with hunger. That tells me this. The father had a lot of servants. But somehow this son feels that his service was a cut above everyone else's. Can I tell you what will make you a really unhappy Christian? When you begin to feel as though somehow you're some superstar Christian and what you do for God is really a cut above what everybody else is doing. You know why? Because, uh, listen, great peace have they whose minds are stayed on thee, on God. Peace comes from keeping our mind on Him. Discontentment comes from getting our focus on us. 
And when you begin to think much about your Christianity, and what I mean is to think very well of your Christianity, to think you're really doing God a favor by serving Him, it won't be long you'll begin to grow dissatisfied with the way He's treating you. I would say this, uh, there's another problem with it. He viewed His service as a gift. I've done this for you for all these years. Aren't I a good son? Hadn't I been good to you? But the problem was His service was not a gift. His service was a responsibility. You remember what Paul says in the book of Galatians? Now he's using this metaphorically to talk about some things about the law. But he says this in Galatians 4.1. He says, The heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. Now when it speaks of him as a child, it's not speaking of that biologically, but it's saying until he's the master of the house, he's a servant in the house. So in other words, this older brother says, hey, haven't I been good to you? I've been serving you all these years. Aren't I a great son? Haven't I been good to you? Why aren't you being good to me? But if you'd had the right perspective, you'd have said this. This is my appropriate lot in life. I'm just doing what I'm told to do, what I'm called to do, what I'm built to do. I'm here to serve the Father and nothing else. You remember what the Lord said about that in Luke chapter 17? Verse number 7, He told a little parable, or not even a parable, an illustration really. He says in verse 7, But which of you having a servant plowing or feeding cattle will say unto him by and by when he has come from the field, Go and sit down to me. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. In other words, what he's saying is when a servant comes in, you don't say, you look so tired, take a load off. Instead, to a servant, you'd say, I don't care how uh, how tired you are, I'm the master of the house, go fix my food, and then you can eat. It says in verse 9, doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? Good old King James word is used here, I trow not, meaning he says, I think not. I don't think he does. So likewise ye, the Lord said, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded of you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Can I tell you, the moment you begin to view your service as some extravagant gift to God, instead of the calling of your life, you will begin to drift from the Lord. You'll begin to feel as though He's not doing you the way that you need to be done. And you'll begin to drift from the Lord. He talked about His service. We see His focus on His service. Number two, we see His focus on His obedience. He says, Neither transgress I at any time thy commandment. Now that's a proud, tall statement, isn't it? Could a man really say, I could not say that. Most of you probably couldn't. I would say none of you could if you're being honest. That you lived, however many years you lived in, in your guardian or father's home and, and never transgressed a single commandment. What he really meant is, I ain't never done nothing that I got caught at. You see, he views his responsibility to be obedient as something between him and his earthly authority and not something between him and his heavenly Father. He's not doing it for God. He's doing it for his earthly Father. And therefore, he looks at it and says, boy, I've been very obedient to you. But the God that knows all things and sees all things, He knows what we really are. And instead, what He should have said is, hey, I'm not much, Daddy, but thank you for letting me be your son. Instead, He says, I've been awful. Aren't you thankful you've got a boy like me? What a good son I've been. When your focus is on what you do, you will never be happy. 
When you get your focus off of what God's doing in your life and get it on yourself and on uh, thinking that you're so great, so wonderful, uh, such a privilege that God uh, would be allowed to save somebody like you, it won't be long you'll be drifting away from it. It's a wrong perspective. He was upset about what he had done for the Father. Number two, he was upset about what the Father had not done for him. He said, and yet, thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Poor child. I mean, really, he's one of these kids that did not get a pony for Christmas. Right? <laughs> what an unfortunate child he was. Never once did his father fatten up a calf just so that he could have a party with his friends. Can I say that the moment, and there's a lot to be said about this, and I don't know if I'll get it all said, but the moment that you begin to interpret the love of God for you through the prism of what He is doing for others or isn't doing for you, you will become a dissatisfied Christian. As long as you start looking around and saying, well, I can't believe that you've done this for them and you haven't done this for me, you will begin to drift from the Lord. Why did He say this? What a strange thing to say. By the way, wasn't nobody stopping Him from going in there and slicing off a piece? Why, why was He so upset about this? Well, number one, because of His temporal attitude. Think about what He says here. Yet thou never gavest me a kid. Never gavest me a young calf, a fatted calf. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? He believes that the father had given that cow to his son. That's wrong. That's not what took place here. In fact, the thing that was given was not given to the child. It was given to the Lord in gratitude for God bringing the child home. And the son was allowed to partake in it. But it's interesting when he views this, all he saw was a stake, not a sacrifice. He saw the temporal, but he did not see the spiritual. And because of this, he didn't value the great spiritual gifts that his father had given to him. He thought this was just a, a gift, an award that was given to the younger son. And because his whole focus was on temporal things, he had a wrong appreciation of how much his father loved him. Can I say, as long as your life is about temporal things, you won't really understand just how much God loves you. God does a lot of temporal things for us. Uh, he puts food in our fridge. He puts money in the bank. Uh, he, he puts more stuff than we could ever need or imagine to need in our house. He does a lot of amazing things. He keeps our health good, as good as it is. He, he gives us wonderful loved ones around us. He does a lot of temporal things. But did you know that the greatest things that God has ever done for you and me are not things that are tangible or temporal? It's the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. It's the forgiveness that we enjoy. It's the fellowship that we enjoy. It's the position that we enjoy. But as long as your focus is on temporal things, it won't be long you'll begin to drift from the Lord. I would say because of His temporal attitude. Number two, because of His carnal appetite. He says this, Thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. Does that really, is that really what he thought was going on inside the house? He thought they were just having a block party. He thought they was having a cookout. What was really happening is a sacrifice had been given. The Father, this was a worship service, not a party. And the Father had given this sacrifice because He was rejoicing for His Father, uh, for His Son being brought home. The calf wasn't, wasn't fatted up for the Son. It was fatted up for the Savior and for the Sovereign God. It was given to Him. But because all he sees is what he can consume. Let me say this. He is as, he is every bit as carnal as the younger brother that went down in the far country. He is just as focused 
on his own desires, his own lusts, his own uh, impulses, his own appetites as that younger son ever was. Did you know you can stay in church and still be carnal? I know you know that. You can stay in church and still be carnal. You remember whenever the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth? He wrote to them. They were in church. They were serving God. Hey, they were even the most gifted church, and yet they were the most carnal church of any that Paul wrote to. He stayed at home, but he had this carnal appetite. He couldn't understand why the Father wouldn't celebrate like that with him. But the truth is, the Father didn't slay the calf to celebrate what the younger son had done. He slew it to celebrate what God had done. The Father slew the calf as a thanks offering to God. He thought the feast meant that his brother was more deserving than him. He was confused because he viewed things carnally. And if you think the whole reason for your relationship with God is for God to give you things that you enjoy, there's going to be times that God seems very unfair to you because He will give other people things they enjoy and He won't give you the things that you desire and you enjoy. In other words, He was focused on what had not been done for Him. I've seen people whose whole Christian life was derailed because all they could focus on was what God hadn't done for them. They was upset, they was angry about things that God had not done for them. And they began to drift. And then number three, he was bitter. He was angry about what the Father had done for another. So let, let's just recap it before we preach it. He's angry because he did a lot of things for the Father and didn't feel like he was recompensed. He's angry because the Father never gave him the things that he thought that he would need and that he should deserve and he should have. And then he was angry because his Father took those things and gave them to somebody else. His whole focus, you notice, is not on the Lord and it's not even on the Father. The whole thing centers around Himself. Self-centered Christians are miserable Christians. When your focus is on you, you're going to drift away. Notice number one, what He feigned outwardly. I thought this was interesting. He's so scandalized. Look at verse 30. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. He didn't seem so outraged before his younger brother showed up. Now all of a sudden that the younger son has arrived home, he is deeply disturbed by the way that boy has been living. And he comes and his bitterness and his resentment is robed in a sanctimony that he can pretend as though he is just scandalized by the evil behavior of his younger brother. You know, I found this that oftentimes when we grow bitter and dissatisfied as Christians, we begin to tear other Christians down make ourselves feel better. Now that does not mean that we should not judge all things with righteous judgment. doesn't mean we should not be critical in the sense of critiquing and and having the mind of Christ. But it does say this, that oftentimes we use that as a cloak of maliciousness to satisfy our flesh instead of submitting ourselves to the Lord. I see what he feigned outwardly, what he pretended outwardly. Oh, Daddy, I'm, I'm just so upset at the way he's hurt you. I'm just so bothered by what he's done towards you. But notice what he felt inwardly. There's a little clue here. I don't know if you picked up on it. Verse 30, he says, But as soon as this, thy son was come. Isn't that interesting? What a weird way to say that. He didn't say, when my brother showed up. He said, when your son showed up, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. You know why he's really upset about what his father had done for his brother? Because he thought it showed a preference for the other son instead of him. That's a little dig that he gives. As soon as your son showed up, you say, preacher, how do you know that? Because me and my wife do it all the time. 
My kid disobeys. You hear what your son just said? As soon as this thy son, what he's saying is, that's your boy. Why don't you just go in the house and celebrate with him? You love him more than you love me. Why don't you go in there and just have a good time? I'll sit out here by myself because you've not done for me what you've done for them. It's petulant childishness, isn't it? But oh, how guilty I am of it. How guilty I am of looking up at a gracious God that loved me, that saved me, that has done so much. There's not a thing in my life that I have that's worth talking about that didn't come from the hand of God. I mean, there's nothing about my life that I have produced. Every bit of it's come from God. But oh, I've had those moments, haven't you? Where you've sat like Elijah inside the cave, push everybody out, sit there across your arms, salt, and say, God, you don't love me. You love me. You'd do this for me like you did for them. When your focus is on what God has done for others, to the exclusion of seeing what God has done for you. You see, that's what that's what the Father says to him. Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. What he says is, you're focusing on that cow in there. Don't you know you own the whole field? You're worried about what I've given to your brother. Don't you realize you're the elder? This is all yours. And here's the problem. It's not wrong to see what God does for another, but we grow bitter when we see it to the exclusion of what God's done for us. When it's not saying, hey, praise God. I mean, this whole celebration was about celebrating what God had done for the younger brother. There's nothing wrong with that. We ought to rejoice when God does good things in the lives of other people. That ought to thrill us. That ought to excite us. But there's a problem when we see it and we see it with a bad attitude. And we look at it and we see it to the exclusion of seeing what God's done for us. We say, well, I can't believe God did that for them and not for me. And we say, can you believe God would do that? I mean, as wicked as them people are, I don't understand why God does that. You know what I learned a long time ago? I learned this. If we was going to play this game of expecting God to only work and use people and do things in people's lives that deserve it, what none of us get it. I'll tell you right now, hey, listen, there are people that I scratch my head about. But I've just decided I'm not God and He is. And what He does is what's best. It's not my place to tell Him how to be God. He can be God without my advice. So instead, I should just be content seeing what God has done for me. So what's the solution? How do we fix it? You say, preacher, I, I feel this in my life. I, I feel this loss of joy and, I, and this deadness in my walk with the Lord. And it's because of the things you've said. I've, I've been angry. I've been distracted. I've been seeing these other things. How do I fix it? Well, notice what the Father says. He gives him some things that will help him get a right perspective and a right heart. Number one, in verse 31, he says unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. You know what we need when we're in that shape? Number one, we need a reminder of the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Number one, we need a reminder of the loving relationship we have with the Heavenly Father. Son, Thou art ever with me. Thou art ever with me. Ever in the past, ever in the future. You know the greatest thing God ever did for you and me was when He saved us and brought us into the family of God. And I and I almost hate to say this because it gets said so often, but it gets said so often because it's true. If He never did another thing for us, we've got enough to shout all through eternity on that one simple fact. But let me go a step beyond and say, even if all those things, temporal things, desires, ambition, whatever is in our life, even if that's not there, the fact that we have a loving relationship with Him 
should be enough to keep us grounded in our walk with Him. Never forget, man, you're a child of the King. Son, thou art ever with me. The greatest thing we've got is not the fatted calf in there on the table. It's the ever with Him. It's the ever with Him. Notice number two, he speaks about the limitless resources of the Father. He says, and all that I have is thine. Now that was pretty much explicitly true. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because all the younger brother's inheritance had been squandered in the far country. It says a certain man had two sons. It doesn't say he had 17, but we're only going to talk about two. It says a certain man had two sons. We know what happened to the younger brother's inheritance. It's gone. It's squandered in the, in the far country. He, he, he spent it all down there. And so everything that's around belonged to the older brother. Can I just, I didn't include this, but can I just make this statement? You remember back earlier when he said this, all these years have I served thee. Who exactly was he serving? It was his inheritance. Oh, I've been so good to you, God, serving you. Who, who exactly are we serving? Isn't it in our interest to serve God? Doesn't our life go better when we serve God? The father looks at him and says, everything you see is yours. You're upset. It's like children. Have you ever, maybe you've had kids, maybe you've known kids close enough in age, if you bought them something, you had to buy them both the same thing, or else it'd be World War III. Kids have an innate ability to covet the toy that is in the other child's hand. Doesn't matter what it is. And how like that we are sometimes. God must not love me because He didn't give me what this person has. Hey, the truth is, He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Uh, And what he's giving unto them, even the elder brother had a part in. Because part of that cow belonged to him and ultimately all of it would have belonged to him. He needed to understand that though he may not have it right in front of him, he may not be partaking in it right now. The truth is all things have been given unto him. He has a reminder of the riches. Number two, he's given a reminder to rejoice. This may seem silly, but look at verse 32. He says it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. Now, what does it mean when it says meet? It means it was appropriate. It is the time for us to rejoice, to make merry and be glad. You know, sometimes we need a reminder to rejoice. Uh, Let me make two statements here. One, it is normal for a Christian to be joyful. Sometimes you live in bitterness so long, you begin to forget what it was like to be a joyful Christian. And some people's attitude about Christianity is that somehow it's inappropriate for Christianity to be joyful. That it needs to be a somber and sour and dour thing. You won't find that in your King James Bible. Instead, what you find is joy is normal for a Christian. If you don't have joy, and again, don't mean you're not entitled to a bad day. It doesn't mean you enjoy everything that happens, but a joy that abides under all that. If that's not there, that's abnormal. That's not normal. It's normal for a Christian to be joyful. Let me say number two, it is spiritual for a Christian to be joyful. Remember what they're doing in there, right? He thinks they're partying. What they're really doing is worshiping. Uh, and, and let me say this. Uh, it, <laughs> no, I ain't going to say that. You won't. No, I ain't going to say that. Uh, let me. Hey, it shouldn't look like a rock concert, but it shouldn't look like a funeral either. It's spiritual to worship. It's appropriate to worship. What he says is there was a lot of time to weep, but son, now it's time to party because God has done a great thing this day. He had to be reminded to rejoice. How many times do we have to be reminded that we ought to be joyful people? It's not normal to be miserable. 
There are times we all go through darkness. There are times that we all struggle. But we need to understand that the way God designed this, He said, your joy shall no man take. He said, I've given you joy and your joy shall no man take. A reminder to rejoice. Then finally, and I'm done this morning, He was given a reminder of the reason for it all. He says, for this thy brother was dead. Why are we doing this? I don't understand, Daddy. It's not fair. It's not right. How come you're doing this for him and not for me? I just don't understand all this. Well, son, this is why. For this thy brother was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost and is found. He needed to be reminder, reminded of the whole reason the father had the farm in the first place. Can I tell you why? Any parent will tell you this. Why do you do what you do? Hey, listen, if, if my wife and kids left me, I'd just live in a tent somewhere. Why do you build the house? Why do you build the future? Why do you do the things you do? You do it for your kids, for your spouse, for your family. Why did God do all this? He does it for His children. <laughs> he needed to be reminded that God's desire is to breathe new life in dead people. You need to be reminded. You say, preacher, I'm wayward. I've wandered from the Lord. I've not been out open sin, but my life's not been where it needs to be. What's God going to do about it? I'll tell you what He'll do about it. He'll take those things that are dead and make them alive again. He needed to be reminded the whole thing this was about was doing what He had done, what God had done in the younger brother's heart. He wanted to do in the older brother's heart. It may have looked different from the outside, but it was the very same thing. Not only to breathe new life, but his desire is to bring back the lost. He says he was lost and now he's found. You know what God wants? He wants us in our right place. He wants us to be in fellowship with Him. When our heart drifts from Him, when our life is not what it needs to be, His desire is not to hit us over the head, to throw us on the garbage heap of eternity, to to expel us from His presence. His desire is to bring us back to Him. And so in your life, you might be saying, and I I trust this could be true of some people that are here today. I mean, listen, you're here today because you love the Lord. You're here today because you have a relationship with God. And chances are you're not that younger brother. But you could be that older brother. That one who you're allowing your heart to drift from the Lord. And you need to get back into close fellowship with Him. i got news for you. He's waiting on you just as sure. Hey, the same way He was... He came outside for the younger brother and He came outside for the older brother. He came outside to receive the one that had been in the far country. And He came outside to receive the one that had been sitting in His own self-pity. He's waiting for you this morning if you'll come unto Him. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and you don't have to wait even a moment. If God is dealing with your heart, Find a place down here right now. Don't give the devil even an inch to be able to bully you, to talk you out of it. Go ahead and find a place down here right now. Brother Tim's come to the piano. He's going to play as soon as he gets there. But you don't wait even a moment. Come find a place right now this morning if God has spoken to your heart. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.